0: Hello and welcome to this download from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Roland Chambers, author of The Last Englishman, The Double Life of Arthur Ransom. Roland's book is the first to explore the complex, often quite murky relationship that Arthur Ransom had with Soviet Russia in the years following the Revolution, long before he became the well-loved author of children's adventure stories in the Swallows and Amazons series. Ransom, born in Leeds in 1884, always felt himself to be an underdog and an outsider. After a disastrous first marriage and stuttering literary beginnings, he fled to Russia, where he reinvented himself as a journalist. His links with the new regime post-revolution became ever closer, and for a time he was the only Englishman capable of getting an audience with Lenin. Roland Chambers' biography presents much new information about Ransom's involvement with the Soviets, But I began by asking him to sum up the familiar, cosy image of Ransom that his book sets out to overturn.
1: Well, I think the picture that we have now in our minds is of a man who, for better or for worse, um, has become synonymous with a very nostalgic view of uh, kind of Edwardian Britain. I mean, Britain at the height of the empire, a Britain that's confident, a Britain that uh, plays by the rules, but definitely plays an adventurous country, a, a country full of full of kind of curious and practical types, you know, who'd, who'd like to travel and find out about things and learn how to solve practical problems. That's the Ransom, I think, you know, that we think of now, and we think of him also as quite a sort of cosy, domestic figure. We think of him ultimately as a very trustworthy figure. Uh, we think of him perhaps as the man, you know, who's given a CBE and was a member of the Garrett Club, a member of the Yachting Club And, you know, a very clubbable, British, tweedy, sort of chap with a pipe in his mouth mm. You know, you could trust your kids with
0: Yeah, that that's sort of representative of the establishment and the creator of an entirely benign world
1: Yes, I, I think the most important thing about Ransom's world, the world that he created uh, with Swallows and Amazons in 1930 the most important thing about it was that it was it was a it was a safe world, that it was a world full of adventure, that there were lots of things to discover, but the stakes in that world are fairly low. In fact, Ransom only really wrote one book where the stakes were, were quite high, and, and that book, rather ironically in my view, is called "We Didn't Mean to Go to Sea," when the children accidentally cross the, uh, the the North Sea to uh, to Holland. So yes, a safe world, uh, and and everything in proportion to itself.
0: Tell me how you first became aware then that there was a lot more to Arthur Ransom than that conventional cosy image of him.
1: There was a a sort of flutter of interest uh, in, in the press in 2003, I believe, when some papers were released, some private papers that suggested that Ransom had spied for the British during the Russian Revolution. And that was really when I became interested. And very quickly, uh, it didn't require much research, a a quick read of Ransom's autobiography and a trip to the British National Archive in Kew to discover that he'd really led the most extraordinary life, a deeply controversial life before these books, and that the books themselves as a result were a a kind of an extraordinarily successful act of revision. Basically, after Ransom's success as, as a children's novelist, it's not just that nobody ever thought of him the same way again. It's that, regardless of the number of times that people were told that Ransom had been in Russia, that he was one of the most controversial British correspondents reporting out of Russia, that he was an apologist for the Bolsheviks, that he had married Trotsky's secretary, uh, that his his loyalty to the British government was questionable, uh, that that you know many people felt that he wasn't actually particularly loyal. Regardless of the number of times that this came up people always forgot it immediately. And the reason for that is that Ransom had accomplished this sort of amazing PR coup through his children's books uh, and and again through his autobiography. So when I went to Q, uh, the first thing I did was to look through these memos, and it was then that I discovered that Ransom really had been the object of an enormous amount of vitriol, from, from the British Secret Services uh, and the British Foreign Office, but also that he was actually working <laughs> for the very people who were pouring all this bile on him. And, and, and now I thought, well, you know, th- this is a very interesting character and I wanted to find out more about him.
0: Take us back then to his early years. Tell me a little bit about his family and his, his life as a young man.
1: Basically, Ransom was very much a son of the Victorians, Most of his, well all of his uh, relatives, taken as a whole, his relatives represent the solid backbone of imperial Victorian Britain. So his father was uh, a school teacher and then a university uh, university professor. His mother came from, her her father had been a, a, a sheep farmer in Australia, but a very successful sheep farmer had made so much money that he devoted the later part of his life to watercolours and he was extremely successful as well as a watercolourist. Ranson's paternal grandfather was a, a, the kind of black sheep of the family but a, a, a commercial chemist. So, uh, you know, he was born into this very middle class family of doctors and teachers and actually preachers, further back Quaker preachers. Mm-hmm. His childhood was was very safe but the thing is that his, his, his father died when he was 12 years old actually 13 years old and he died horribly he died of a form of tuberculosis of the bone and his his leg uh, was amputated incrementally at the ankle and then at the knee and then at the thigh and this made a, I i think a terrible impression on ransom not least because he felt that as a child he'd been a disappointment to his father and this is something a sense a feeling of 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 having been a disappointment to his father, and as a result of being a kind of an underdog that never left him in his life. He grew up in Edwardian Britain when a lot of very difficult questions were being asked. Francis obviously, is one of the people who's most responsible for casting Edwardian Britain as this very sleepy, uh, very sort of domestic and, and, and cheerful and peaceful afternoon that preceded, you know, the, the, the Great War. Uh, but in fact, it was, a, it was a time of enormous sort of political turmoil and progress. You've uh, you've got the rise of the Labour Party, uh, women's uh, uh, suffrage being debated, the Fabian Party. You know, become you know a, a forum for all sorts of debate. And Britain also plays host to the uh, a meeting uh, of of the Russian Social Democratic Party, which sees a split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. And uh, a number of Ransom's acquaintances are, are familiar with the Bolshevik Party, and a, a couple of his friends from university actually were, uh, became members of the Bolshevik party later on. So, that's Ransom's background. He becomes a hack writer in Edwardian London, but he's perfectly situated really, I think, to to identify with the politics of the underdog, you know, with, with, with the politics of those people who feel that there's an establishment, a ruling class, who have very little imagination and are exploiting the majority of the population.
0: And he comes to London as you say, a, a young man on the make with literary ambitions, mm. he makes a disastrous marriage, yeah. which is of key importance, I suppose, in his later life. Because it seemed to me that that was that was the main impetus for his later trips to Russia. Tell me, tell me a little bit about the marriage.
1: I think you know, Ransom was a sort of hopeless romantic. He made it a sport, or, or at least he. Proposed to literally dozens of women before he proposed to Ivy Walker, and she, much to his surprise, accepted him. Or at least that's the story. She was a very beautiful woman, very much the sort of woman that I think Ransom would have felt, you know, very flattered to be associated with. But the fact is that in marrying Ivy Walker, who was a fantasist and uh, not a very grounded person, a lovely person in many ways, but but a uh, a very mature person, a very demanding person. He married the most mercurial element of his own imagination, and what he needed was something a lot more solid, because he wasn't a very mature person himself when they got together. They had a child very soon after they were married, but they had a child in 1910. And by 1913, Ransom was very unhappy in his marriage. In 1913, his unhappiness in his marriage was compounded by a libel action brought against him by Lord Alfred Douglas thanks to a biography that Ransom had written of Oscar Wilde. And following his successful defence of this uh, libel action brought against him, Ransom basically decided that he'd had enough, and uh, without telling his wife, uh, he, he basically fled the country, secretly procured himself a passport, went to Sweden ostensibly for a walking holiday, but very quickly decided that actually the best place for him was the opposite end of Europe, Russia which uh, usefully was the only country in Europe that required a, a passport and that's so his wife wouldn't be able to follow him that, so that, that's where he went
0: And was there any more sort of cultural draw pulling him towards Russia because he was in, he was very interested in folktales throughout his career and he'd, he'd been collecting and and translating folk tales. So, was, was there some kind of a fi- deeper affinity, or was it simply that it was a long way away that took him to Russia?
1: I think there were t- several reasons why he decided to run away to Russia in 1913. The first was, I really feel that it was it was it was a long way from England. That was very important. Secondly, Russia in 1913 was the object of a great deal of curiosity from the British. Britain had entered into an alliance with Russia against. Uh, Germany and Austria and Italy at the time. Russia in 1913 had just celebrated the 300th centi- uh, 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 anniversary, the tercentenary, of the Romanov family, and the Romanovs themselves had divided Br- the British intelligentsia. Uh, on the one hand, you know, a symbol of oppressive feudal autocracy. So the English felt, you know, a, a, a rather anachronistic family in Europe ironically uh, perhaps. (laughs) On the other hand the British were fascinated by the Russians because Russia's culture had been you know so influential in Britain. Tolstoy had been an enormously influential novelist and philosopher. Socialism you know uh, Russian socialism had had a profound impact on Britain via Jewish emigres who had had gone to places like Leeds which was where Ransom was born and there was a very strong influence in in, in amongst the kind of progressives in Leeds and thirdly yes the fairy tales Ransom was amazingly capable of retelling his life to himself as a fairy tale and uh, he told it he told his mother a few years before he went to Russia that Ransom left university without getting a degree he was studying chemistry there. he told her that, that basically fairy tales are the only form of literature that you could succeed in without a degree. So he decided that this was the way to go. and uh, a number of his friends were interested in fairy tales and uh, Caucasian fairy tales were amongst the sort of most you uh, know authentic I mean lots of people were going to Russia and sort of pretending to be peasants and and uh, you know they would sort of stroll around the lake district you know in heavy walking boots and with their shirts open. Yeah, go to Russia and you know pretend to be peasants in Russia and, and sort of write stories about that. And so you know, definitely a huge attraction of Russia was was the fact that you know there are all these folk tales and, and in fact Ransom spent uh, having fled England, you know, spent several months in Russia compiling these uh, translations of fairy tales, and that was the beginning of uh, an interest that, that, that you know consumed him for the next ten years or so.
0: And his fascination with Russia was to last for well over a decade. Mm. And he became a, a correspondent for the Daily News, yes. and became very involved with many of the, the major actors in in Russian history. Tell me how you set about tracing his footsteps, reconstructing his mm. role in in some of those um, events that he was witness to or participated in.
1: <laughs> well, I started off with Ransom's diary. <laughs> I mean, having read his autobiography, I went to Leeds, where all his papers are in the Brotherton Library. And I started reading his diary and his writing. His handwriting is very, very small. And his handwriting gets smaller, the more interesting (laughs) the things he's talking about. So I, I, you know, I I read his diary, and then I read all of his letters and his articles. And I, I pieced together the conversations that he'd been having with people so far as they survived in his correspondence and I compared those to what he'd written in his autobiography. And then I went to the British National Archive and I looked at what everybody had had to say in there about Ransom and there was plenty. And then I went to Russia and in the company of two excellent research assistants we plunged into the archives in Russia and we found a great deal of interest there. We found out for the first time really about Ransom's family, his his in-laws, Ransom married Trotsky's secretary eventually and I, I found out about her family. So, yeah, all of these, I mean, the, the, basically his papers in Leeds, the British National Archive and the archives in Russia gave me three... Th- these were the three particular ways in which I, I looked at, at Ransom and, and, and by cross-referencing these things I could reconstruct, you know, what what had happened at Russia.
0: As you worked on the book, Riley, really, did you find your own idea of him shifting because as i was reading it i was thinking is he really naive at this point or is he is is he supremely calculating or is he playing this off against that or did he did he come and go i mean how did you get a fix on what you felt his motives to be at at various stages throughout the, the narrative
1: well two things first of all ransom had a genius for making friends second one of the things that struck me most reading through his correspondence was a letter that he wrote to his mother, and his his mother was by far his most regular correspondent. He told her at the height of the Red Terror in nineteen eighteen that the revolution had not altered him personally in any way. So, here's a man who, following the war, he's 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 a reason. I mean, he makes some money as a writer, but he's he's pretty well he's he's unknown really. He becomes a journalist in 1915 for the Daily News. As a journalist, he's fairly unknown. Following the revolution, he becomes one of a tiny, tiny number of British journalists who is, this is following the Bolshevik revolution. There are two revolutions. Following what's known as the bourgeois revolution, Ransom started writing journalism that was more sympathetic to the left. Following the Bolshevik revolution, he returned to Russia, where he became one of a tiny number of journalists that were permitted access to the Bolshevik leaders. So the question for me was, does Ransom really believe in the Bolshevik movement? Or is he simply pursuing what he sees as the most constructive way forward for his career as a a journalist? Or is there some external pressure being placed on him, which he can't resist? And it turns out that all three of these things are true. The first, does he believe in the Bolshevik movement? Well, perhaps he does and perhaps he doesn't. But the fact is that he falls in love with Trotsky's secretary. And Trotsky's secretary is effectively, you know, a Bolshevik. She is inextricably bound up with the Bolshevik party. Once he's in love with, with Trotsky's secretary, uh, Yevgenia Sharpina, it's highly unlikely that he's going to be able to report, objectively, but the point is that his career <laughs> is assured because he has access to to the party that no other journalist has. His closest friend at that time becomes Karl Radek, who is the Bolshevik chief of propaganda. Now it turns out that Karl Radek actually introduced Yevgenia to Trotsky in the first place, or at least Karl Radek's wife did. So Yevgenia owes her own career and her safety during the revolution, and actually it turns out the safety of her family to Karl Radek, who is this brilliant manipulator. So. We have a situation where Ransom, I think romantically, is sympathetic towards the Bolsheviks because they're the absolute underdog. You know, and, and Ransom sort of feels romantically that he's an underdog. So he likes that. But on the other hand, you know, he's deeply romantically involved with, with Trotsky's secretary. And his closest friend is Karl Ruddick. Now these exert obviously an external influence over him, which he's reluctant to admit, but which is always there. And it becomes quite clear as his life complicates that there are certain moves, as it were, on the chessboard that aren't just, they're just not available to him. In terms of the promotion of his career, there's simply no doubt that by the middle, by sort of March 1918, he has no competition uh, in terms of British journalists reporting out of Russia. Uh, There's a guy called Morgan Phillips Price, but Morgan Phillips Price has become sort of self-declared Bolshevik, so he's kind of... (laughs) <laughs> he's 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 shot himself in the foot of
0: it blown his cover
1: <laughs> he's blown his cover he's blown his cover and in fact morgan phillips price eventually sacked from the manchester guardian for editing a bolshevik newspaper so so ransom you know he's he's writing for the new york times His stuff is being published by the new york times he's publishing in the daily news no other journalist is as extensively quoted there's very little information coming out of russia at all so it's not just the newspapers that are interested in ransom it's also the Foreign Office that's interested in ransom, and actually it's in the middle of nineteen eighteen that the ransom's recruited to m i six which is itself a kind of a, a, was it was a pretty fascinating episode
0: somehow he manages to keep walking this tightrope he doesn't fall off, you know that you can see times when he wobbles, but he manages to keep pursuing this path where it's not quite clear who he's working for, where his true allegiances lie. He even gets arrested and is questioned, but doesn't ultimately come to grief over this, this very delicate course he's treading.
1: It's very important to understand how little people in England understood what was happening in Russia. And it's very important to understand how little people in Russia understood what was happening in England. A man like Ransom, who could travel freely, relatively freely, between England and Russia was an extraordinary rarity. Ransom, as I've said, felt himself to be an underdog. And in that respect, I think he was primed from a, relatively early, a very early age to sympathize with the Bolsheviks. He was also, on the other hand, very much, as I said, a child of, of, of the Victorians in the Victorian establishment. And I think you know his notion of the underdog was very much like a fairy tale notion. So he was also curiously very sympathetic to the old Russia, the, what, what people like to call the real Russia after the revolution, the Russia of honest peasants and witches with iron teeth and the little czar, you know, and, and those wonderful stories that came out of, of that sort of folk culture. And if you look at Bransom's friends, and, and uh, some friends wanted nothing to do with him after the Bolshevik revolution, but a lot of his friends actually stuck with him. Some of them were actually very right-wing, and some of them were very left-wing. And Ransom felt comfortable with all of them. And what this meant was that when when Ransom came back from Russia, and it was quite clear, you know, that he had been vociferously supportive of the Bolsheviks, that he had denied the Red Terror, there was strong evidence to suggest that he had been smuggling money out of Russia to fund the headquarters of the Bolshevik Party in, in Stockholm. In short, he had been working very, very closely with the Bolsheviks, and in all probability, when he was spying for the British, had actually also been working for the Russian uh, secret intelligence services. Uh, He came back to Britain, he was arrested by uh, Scotland Yard, and taken to talk to Sir Basil Thompson, who was an extremely conservative man, and as... A deputy prime minister of colonial Tonga had, had said that his closest friends were cannibals because uh, they were so much more, you know, reliable than these sort of, you know, town yeah. edu- edu- these town educated missionaries. He-, he loathed as sort of, you know, over types. They sat down together, and Ransom said, "Look, I'm not a Bolshevik. I'm not even a socialist. My godfather is Sir Arthur Ackland, former minister of education under Gladstone, you know, a pillar of the establishment. I'm a liberal." And what I feel is that Britain's animosity towards the Bolsheviks, while understandable from an ideological point of view, is a waste of breath, that the Bolsheviks pose no threat to Britain, that the current British invasion of Russia, which was ongoing, the Allied intervention in Russia, military intervention in Russia, albeit will at a fairly small scale, <laughs> it is a waste of resources, it's a waste of men, it provides the Bolsheviks with a propaganda platform, it's appalling policy and you need to talk to people like me who have the ear of the Bolshevik government you know what do you think I'm doing for you guys in there you know how am I earning my bread with the foreign office I'm getting close to these guys you know I've just been you know Ransom was the only British journalist to attend the inauguration of the the Third International which was Lenin's vehicle for spreading revolution abroad. Now, of course, you know, when Ransom was talking to the Soviet, he thought that the, the Third International was a wonderful thing. You know, he thought of himself as an internationalist. Or he wasn't sure whether he was a revolutionary, but he thought of himself as an internationalist. But when he's talking to Basil Thompson, Sir Basil Thompson, Spycatcher Thompson, head of the yard, he says, "Well, you know, I attended the Third International, and uh, it was it was sort of uh, it was uh, it was comic opera. It was very amusing, a complete waste of time. Uh, you've got nothing to worry about. You know, these these guys, you know, they're, they're 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 comedy figures, really. They can't do us any harm. In fact, the more we attack them, the stronger we make them."
0: So, do you think that deep down he had principles, or was he ultimately a shape-shifting opportunist who could who was sort of dazzled by being in Lenin's company but then when he went back to the British establishment he could speak that language too I mean, or do you, think, do you think if you sort of scratch beneath that that there was a sort of layer of, of principle or ideology that subtended everything else I think it's a very very difficult question to answer if you read the
1: memoir literature from Ransom's period the number of reliable witnesses is extremely small there's a book by Bertrand Russell written in 1920, after a visit to Russia, just called Bolshevism. And Russell is unequivocal in his condemnation of Bolshevism, and he's extremely lucid. He's very persuasive and convincing. He's also extremely rare. Most people who attacked Bolshevism in the press or or in Britain we would consider to be rabid jingoes. Yeah, I mean, Russell described himself as a communist at that time um, in, in that book, uh, and he said the communist experiment in Russia had failed. Most of the people who fell on either side, those on the right, you know, who wanted to just liquidate the Soviet and string them all up, I mean, you know, that, that, that was the whites, uh, that was the white army, they just wanted to liquidate the Soviet. They were responsible for a vast number of atrocities. They were not a nice group of people. The Bolsheviks, obviously, were very extreme. And Ransom is in the middle. Now, does Ransom have any principles? At that time, I think that Ransom recognised that both the extreme left and the extreme right were extremely violent. And I think he, he felt that the extreme left had more stability to offer Russia than the extreme right. Now, in terms of whether Ransom possessed any personal principles, I think it's clear that Ransom did not commit absolutely to the Bolshevik ideology, and he certainly didn't commit to the white ideology. So what was Ransom's ideology? Well, I think Ransom's ideology was self-preservation. And whether you feel that that was an entirely selfish project, or whether you feel that, that basically he had no other alternative at that time, is a different question. I think that what Ransom lacked at that time was a certain ruthless capacity to investigate his own motives. I think Ransom was very keen on investigating other people's motives, but he very rarely looked inside himself. In fact, he explicitly said on several occasions that he was very reluctant to look inside himself and ask himself, why am I doing what I'm doing?
0: You talked at the beginning about this incredibly successful reinvention of himself when he came back from Russia. And by the time he was completing the Swallows and Amazons series, a million copies of those books had been sold. So he must have mm. he must have done very well mm. commercially. I wondered: is it possible for you to say whether you think that success and that reinvention brought him happiness?
1: That's an excellent question. It it brought happiness to to millions of readers. I mean, eventually. I mean, I, I think there was the millionth reader was nineteen forty seven. So millions of people have, have loved Ransom's books. As to whether it brought him happiness personally, I think, yes, it, uh, the, the knowledge that he had created, a series of novels as successful as these, was incredibly valuable to Ransom. And in fact, when he was on his deathbed, it was the only thing that would really kind of provoke any, any reaction from him. It, it became the focus of his whole life. By the same token, it caused him great unhappiness. Because it was a very limited world that he created, it was a very safe world and a very organized world, and it's obviously part of its enormous appeal. but ransom simply excluded anything from that world which would deprive him of the happiness that, that he felt you know it was his was his prize really, not only for writing the books but all the unhappiness that he had suffered before he wrote them and amongst those people to be flung out of that particular Eden were the children who had originally inspired it. <laughs> Particularly, their father, who Ransom really came to hate, uh, he felt that he was that Ernest Eltonian was taking this credit away from him. But also, and perhaps most, well, certainly most sadly, his his only child, Ransom, felt that it was her duty to love him, her duty to accept what he gave her without asking questions, and particularly, I think, her duty to accept the kind of happiness that he had allotted for himself. And when she read Swallows and Amazons and told him that she thought it was tired and churned out, effectively, that she thought it was an artificial world and she didn't want to be part of it, he really never forgave her. Um, and, And this scene was repeated again and again through their lives. I mean, she eventually sold the library, which he felt had been stolen from him by his first wife. She sold that library and, I mean, that was the end between them. But she sold it because, <laughs> because he, he had given her no indication that, that he loved her. And she had actually offered this library to him, but offered to sell it to him mm. uh, because she wanted something from him. She wanted, I think, an apology. He never apologized, and he certainly wasn't going to pay for his books. So they were sold off in, in, in job lots uh, for next to nothing by booksellers. And, and, and that was the end between them. And she died a very, very lonely woman.